And uh, this morning I want to preach a final sermon on Elijah. If you remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I preached the sermon on Elijah. We preached about the, um, what happened with the widow at Zarephath. And then um, what happened on Mount Carmel in his showdown with the prophets of Baal. And then we took a break last week because uh, of our, um, our, our joint meeting, our congregational meeting, rather. And we did morning prayer, preached on something else. But I want to come back to Elijah this morning. And this will wrap up our study of this great prophet of Elijah. And here we see Elijah in, in, in a different mood. You know, um, God has done incredible things through Elijah so far. And the first sermon I entitled was Elijah's Bold Faith in Faithless Times. Because he was a man of bold faith. But here we see him in the midst of something of a faith crisis when we get to 1 Kings 19. He is having a difficult time trusting in God. He's going through a a season that, you know, the ancient writers called the dark night of the soul. You have a difficult time trusting God. What is God up to? And that happens, you know, when we go through suffering in our life or we see other people that are close to us suffering, it can cause us to ask that kind of a question. God, what are you doing? Are you really here or do you really care? We look at what's going on in our world today. Just what happened last Sunday. And the question comes up when we see the violence and the bloodshed and innocent people being killed. God, what are you doing? Do you really have a plan and purpose? Or what about what's happening to the church globally? The persecution of the church. And the antagonism towards Christianity that's growing here in this country. And again, God's people, we can go through this time of crisis. A sense of, is God really at work here? How do I fit into what is going on? And we can experience this time of a crisis of faith. Now, I think it's just encouraging to, to name that and say, Elijah, the great prophet, went through that. And it's a common experience for the people of God to ask these questions and to struggle. doesn't mean you're out of the community or out of the picture as one of God's people. No, this is a common experience of the people of God. Um, and, and this story was preserved for us to reflect on that. And so I want to look here, if you turn in your bulletin, to page 7, where it's recorded. At Elijah's crisis of faith, and then how God responds to this. And there are a couple of dynamics here in the story of Elijah. It's a couple of symptoms, if you will. Signs of his faith crisis. And one is, of course, fear. That's the first thing we see in this passage, that he was afraid. Um, Jezebel said, I'm going to do to you, Elijah, what you have done to my prophets, which was Elijah had them killed by the sword. And she said, this is what's going to happen to you. So Elijah, who had been this uh, bold man of faith, who had seen God do extraordinary things. I mean, we talked about how he was uh, at Mount Carmel. It was 450 verses one. He was standing alone against these prophets. And he prayed and God sent fire from heaven to consume the altar, proving that Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah's bold faith showed up on Mount Carmel. 
But now he's in the valley and he's afraid. He's seen God do extraordinary miracles when he was with the widow of Zarephath, providing miraculously. The flour jar never ran out. The oil was never, never spent. Um, and he raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. And yet here his, his faith begins to melt and to shrink because of Jezebel's murderous threat. And verse 3 tells us that he ran for his life. And it's almost kind of humorous when you think about the geography here because he's really putting some distance between him and Jezebel. He goes to Beersheba, which I discovered was a border town of Israel, right? I mean, if you go a little bit past Beersheba, you're outside the boundaries of the people of Israel. And so he goes to this border town, which was probably far enough, and leaves his servant there. And then he goes into the wilderness. And he doesn't just go to the wilderness. He goes a whole day into the wilderness. He's putting as much distance as he possibly can uh, from himself and, and Jezebel. And so he, he ends up uh, under this uh, broom tree in the wilderness. And, um, and then he expresses just a sense of, of failure and, and fear. Um, Something has happened in his life where the faith has been replaced by fear. Faith has been replaced by fear. And I wonder if we've ever experienced that as well. Is there a Jezebel in our life? I don't mean a wicked woman. But I mean, is there something in our life where we forget how great God is and we look at the great things that are causing us to be afraid? And instead of our trust in God, we begin to focus on the things that make us afraid. What are the Jezebels in our life? When we were studying Wednesday nights with Mike McClyman and he was going through the New Testament commands, he wrote a book on all the commands of the New Testament. And one of the things, I think the last thing we looked at was fear. Remember that? And he said, you know, this is a common commandment in the New Testament. Do not be afraid. Because Fear can displace faith. And I think it's 18 times in the New Testament. God says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Trust in me. But what happened to Elijah is that his uh, fear began to shove out his faith. And so um, the next dynamic I think we see, the next sign of uh, his burnout, his faith crisis, whatever you want to call it, one was fear. And the other is that he feels like of failure, that his mission has failed. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He's tried to be faithful, but he's not getting the results he wanted to see. And so he's laying in the wilderness under the shade of a broom tree, or uh, some people say it's a juniper tree, in the desert wilderness. And he cries out, it's enough, Lord. I've had enough. Now, he's not just running. He's giving up. Let me die. For I am no better than my father's. And then two times in this narrative, he he says he expresses kind of self-pity and he's feeling sorry for himself. He says, I've been very jealous for you, God. I've been faithful to you, the God of hosts. But it's the other people. They have been faithless. They've forsaken your covenant and they've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets. And I'm the only one that's left. So just take me home, Lord, because they want to kill me and. It hasn't worked out. I'm a miserable failure. It's over for me. It's over for your people. 
So Elijah's going through something. I think what's happening here, and I, obviously we can't get the, all the depths of the psychology or what ha- is happening in Elijah's mind other than what we see that he says. But I think one thing that's happened here, and this is kind of speculation on my part, but I, I think I've got a case to make here, is that, you know, Elijah's faith is being crushed under the weight of unmet expectations. He really expected, I believe, a national revival would result after his victory on Mount Carmel. You know, um, I think that he, he thought Ahab and Jezebel would come to him in humility and repentance and say, uh, Elijah, you're right. You know, we're going to, to give up our idol worship. You, you, God proved on this mountain through the fire that he alone is God. And we're going to turn in our idols and we're going to get rid of the rest of the, the prophets of idolatry because Jezebel had the prophets of Baal, but she also had the prophets of Asherah, which was a concert to Baal. And, um, and I think that he thought that that's what was going to happen. A revival was going to break out and people were going to return back to God. Even the leaders, especially the leaders, and that's not what happened. Not what he expected. In fact, Jezebel doubles down on her loyalty to her gods and her hatred towards Elijah and his God. And so Elijah doesn't come through in the way that, or God doesn't come through in the way that Elijah thought God should come through. And I think that's something that we have to watch out for in our lives and in our ministries. We have maybe a certain set of expectations about what God should do in our lives and in our ministries. And when he doesn't come through, that can lead to a crisis of faith. When the road takes a sharp turn, that we didn't expect, that can create a crisis of faith. Uh, When we presume to know what God should do with our lives and in our ministries, whatever those ministries may be. Early when I started preaching, I came across this book that was very helpful to me. It's called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And it's by a guy named Kent Hughes. And um, he talks about when he was a young man, a teenager, he discovered that he had a gift for teaching the Bible and preaching God's word. And when he did a Bible study, you know, people were very receptive and more people would start coming. And when he was 16, he preached his first sermon. That's the first time I preached, too, when I was 16. But he um, his sermon was on Jonah and he was witty and eloquent. And, and his title for his sermon on Jonah was get this. The chicken of the sea or God has a whale of a plan for your life. So that was the kind of wit that Kent Hughes had. (laughs) Uh, And so he was set up. He had all these expectations of what God was going to do through his preaching. And his very first church, he was in his early 30s. Everybody told him how great this is going to be. You're going to be the next so and so. And. He had a core group of 20 families and it started shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. You get six months into it, it was in deep decline. And he said, what's happening, God? You know, we have all this stuff as a church and we have me. Why is it not growing? And that led to a dark night of the soul for Kent Hughes. And he had to reevaluate. What does ministry success really look like according to God's standard? What does God expect for his ministry? And he writes this book and it's about servanthood and love 
and humility and prayer and holiness and preaching the Word of God and leaving the results to God. Anyway, I found that very helpful in my ministry. And I could relate to this idea that when I set up expectations of what God should do in my life and ministry, and when it doesn't come through, that can set me up for a crisis of faith. But it's not God's problem. It's something happening in me. And so I need to surrender my plans and ambitions to God and believe that he's in control. Well, this is where Elijah is at. He's afraid. He feels like he has failed in some way. And of course, the people of Israel are not with him. So how does God respond to Elijah? How does God respond to this crisis of faith? I think there's a pattern here for our own lives. The first thing is that God demonstrates that he is with Elijah in the wilderness. He's with Elijah in the wilderness and he cares for Elijah. He sends this angel to give him food, to provide for him. Um, now, we don't have that in our excerpt, but we have that in you know, the entire passage from 1 Kings 19, that God sent an angel to strengthen Elijah in the wilderness and provided food. And then verse 8 tells us that Elijah rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. But the point is that that's one thing that God wants to do in our lives is to remind us that he's with us and that he cares. When we're going through difficult times and we've got to look for the ways that God is with us and the signs that God cares. Um, there, there was a, I read that, there, that Carl Jung, Ellen can maybe verify this if she's heard this before, but Carl Jung, the great Swiss uh, psychologist, had a sign above his door which said, bidden or unbidden, God is present. God is here. Whether you know it or not, whether you sense it or not, God is with you. And God cares. So we need to look for the ways that God is with us in the faith crisis, in these difficult times. And ask God to open our eyes to see what He's doing and how He is caring for us. So that's the first thing. And then, so God strengthens Elijah with this food and He strengthens Elijah with the, the food of, of His Word. Um, he speaks His Word to him. So Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. This is, of course, the place where God encounter, or Moses encountered God. So this is a mountain of encountering God. But he encounters God in a different way. He comes to a cave and, and lodges in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, this searching, these searching words, what are you doing here, Elijah? God ever said that to you? What are you doing here? How did you get in this place when I've called you to do this? What are you doing here, Elijah? And then he goes into his speech about I'm the only one left. And verse 11, God wants to speak a clear word to him, but in a subtle way. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the sound, the fire, the sound of a low whisper or uh, some translations, um, a still, small voice. 
See, God had shown up in Elijah's life in explosive ways in the past. He, he showed up in kind of spiritual fireworks, but here God shows up in the sound of a low whisper or a still small voice. It's gentle, unobtrusive. Elijah has to listen for this. God speaks in the still small voice. And then God assures Elijah, you know, I still have a work for you to do. I'm with you. He speaks to him in the faith crisis. And then he assures him, I have work for you to do. And by the way, you're not alone in being faithful. I'm still at work in the world and in my people. And there are 7,000 people who have not bowed down to Baal. And he says, I've got a work for you to do. I want you to anoint Haziel to be king over Assyria. And then after that, he gives some more things and more instructions to Elijah. So I think we can sum it up that way, is that this is how God is responding to Elijah. He shows that he's present, that he cares, that he's not done working in the world. It all doesn't depend on Elijah. But yes, he still has something for Elijah to do if he will follow, if he will listen, if he will hear. And that's what we need for our lives, not just in the crisis, but really we need to develop this relationship with God in our lives so that we can hear God speaking his word to us. If we want to replace fear with faith, if we want to get out of the sense of it all depends on me, or I'm a failure and God doesn't have anything left for me to do, then what we need to do is get to a place where we can hear, where we can hear God speaking to us. He speaks to us in His Word written. He speaks to us through His Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. So we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture and in the life of Christ to be tuned to the voice of God. And He speaks to us in this still small voice. Dallas Willard, uh, who is a great spiritual uh, writer, Christian philosopher, I draw a lot on Dallas Willard for my own spiritual development, but he's written this book called Hearing God, A Conversational Relationship with God. And he says that the still small voice is God speaking through our thoughts. God speaking through our thoughts these thoughts are not from us. They're from God. But he, he uses the still small voice. Nothing that ever contradicts his written word or the person of Christ. But I believe that God still speaks to people in the still small voice. That God's spirit communicates to our spirit. But this is something we can grow in and we need to learn to grow in in order to hear God speaking to us. The question that we have to ask ourselves, I think, is... Are we, are we quiet enough to hear the still small voice in our lives? That's the struggle oftentimes that I have. And I don't get quiet enough to listen in this busy world, in this busy life. And the other question I have to ask myself is, do I really want to hear what God has to say? There's some things that maybe need to be cleaned up in my life that I already know about. And he wants to do that. And he's speaking that to me. Do have a heart to hear what God wants to say about my life? There's a story of a farmer who went to his friend who lived in Manhattan. 
And as they're walking down the busy street, the farmer stopped and said, Oh, do you hear that? What? The sound of crickets. Beautiful sound. It's coming right over there in the flower pot. And his friend said, How in the world did you hear that on this busy street? And the farmer reached into his pocket and threw a bunch of coins out and some money on the street. And people stopped. They heard the sound of money. And they bent down and started picking up the money. And he turned to his friend and he said, The heart hears what it longs to hear. The heart hears what it wants to hear. What's the disposition of our life and our heart? Do we want to hear God speaking to us about our life? We have to make a space for His still, small voice. So we just bring our life before the Lord continually and we ask Him to speak in the Word and in the life of Christ and in whatever way He wants to speak. And then we ask for attentive ears to hear. What are you saying to me about my fears? About my sense of failure? About what you want to do and how you want to use me for your glory and for your purposes? Let's pray.